Hello, hello, and welcome to Review 2. This week we're Review 2-ing War. Okay, Mr. The Edge. Can't have a party without the coconuts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Adam Clayton got his groove back. No. What the hell? Big, fun, bombastic. More of the same, please, lads. Hi there, everybody. Welcome to Review 2. You're here with Tyler and... Johnny. This week we are going to review to U2's third album, War, but I do want to talk about uh, just a little bit about where we were when we discovered War. Because both of us were born after the inception of U2, so it, we discovered the U2 albums in a very unlinear way. Uh, and I know when, when I discovered this, this was the first U2 album I bought that wasn't a best of. Oh, right, okay. So this was the first... A full U2 experience I got without having it, uh, a predetermined set list of th- these are all great U2 songs that you should listen to. And this is a whole experience as an album, as one piece of music rather than just a best of, you know, a mixture without any context. So, yeah, it's yeah. interesting. Um, and I have a, a very specific memory of being sat on the back of a bus listening to this album, a very hot, sunny summer's day, uh, very early in my experiences with U2. And I'm just I have my uh, CD player in my pocket and my headphones on, and I was just amazed at the sound that was coming out of it. Listening back to it to research this podcast has brought back so many of those early memories, Mm. the hard-hitting drums. and I think when you're a kid, because you've you've not experienced uh, as many uh, different bands, as many uh, different types of music, those early experiences can be really important to you, and it it did make me smile to think Mm. about those times. But... You're a couple of years older than me. Whereabouts were you? Uh, how many albums had you listened to before you got to war? So I don't know exactly, but my first album was All You Can't Leave Behind, so I know it definitely wasn't that. It was definitely an early one. I think it was maybe the third one that I, I'd heard properly. And I remember going to Andy's Records in Wigan and paying seventeen ninety nine for this on CD. I remember that very distinctly. That's crazy. It's crazy. When you think about music these days... And I don't want to sound old manish here, but you know, compared to the fact you can just go onto YouTube, put in anything, get it for free pretty much straight away. Seventeen ninety nine, but it was worth every penny, even though that was a rip off even then. Yeah. And I remember my abiding memory of listening to War was sitting in my room playing a game that I'd played through a hundred times on PlayStation, uh, called Tenchu Stealth Assassin. So I was almost paying more attention to the music than the game. The game was just something to do with my hands you know, rather than sitting in my room and just listening to War, uh, not on repeat, but constantly, you know, I would come back to that album. Yeah, uh, that, I still do that. I'll mm. uh, have an album on and I'll play a game or something. Um, but I think it's really important that we remember where we bought uh, th- this album. Yeah. I remember I bought it from Sweaty Steve's, which for for those of you who don't know Sweaty Steve's, which I assume is most of you, yeah, hopefully. Uh, it is a little shack uh, that sells second-hand uh, records and CDs in Wigan, and it's been there for, I think, over 20 years. It's been there a very long time. Time immemorial. I, I don't remember a time when it wasn't there. But that's important. When this album was coming out, and um, we were very lucky to remember and experience this kind of... Travelling to a to a store to, to buy the album. It's an event to go and get something. And yeah, go, okay, an today I'm, I'm buying this. I can't just log on to my computer... And 
and download something or listen to something for free. You, it was a an investment yeah. that you had to make. I mean, seventeen pound ninety nine. <laughs> well, I, I certainly didn't pay seventeen ninety nine for it, but I probably got ripped off because sweaty Steve. You know, he he probably he can he can see a guy coming. So <laughs> so that's where I was. Uh, this is a very important album for me because it really solidified my interest in you two. It was the first album I listened to, and you'll find out what I think about this. But first, I think we should go back in time to February 1983 and find out what have you two been doing since October. Okay, Tyler, so what's the story so far? What have you two been up to? Well, since October 1981, which is where we left them last, you two embarked on what I can only describe as another crazy uh, world tour, particularly in Europe, UK and America. Um, there was a statistic that they played over 150 gigs in 1981, which was the end of the boy tour, the mm. beginning of, the, of October, the promotion for October. That's quite a, it's quite a hard task. I love my music and I love being a singer, but I'm not sure 150 gigs is something I would look forward to. Yeah, although you can see that that will have had an impact in really solidifying the chemistry in the band. Well, I think it almost tore them apart <laughs> in, 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 in a, a lot of ways. But yeah, following the release of October, in March they finished the tour. This is March 1982. Uh, they allowed themselves a little break in the summer. Larry and Adam went on a lovely little holiday together. Edge went on holiday on his own. That is unsurprising. And Bono got married to his longtime girlfriend and high school sweetheart, Ali. So Bono's just married Ali, uh, and then we they start the well they started recording. Sorry, a month or so before Bono and Ali got married. Uh, in December they start the pre-war tour. January is the release of New Year's Day, and then February is the release of war this is about 18 months after october i think you can agree pretty busy few months yep edge during this time considered leaving the band yep even for a brief time uh and that is where he started writing surrender bono wrote two hearts beat as one as a kind of wedding present for ali yep a lot of you notice how bono seems to be quite cheap he seems to write right, a lot songs. of songs to Ali anytime he forgets a birthday, an anniversary, uh, anytime he's late for dinner, he's there with pen and paper. Yeah, it's a good way to make up, I suppose. It, well, she must. It must be like a hmm, thanks. It's like getting socks at Christmas, isn't it? If if you're married to Bono, if you're married to a sock maker and you get socks at Christmas, then yeah. So if you're married <laughs> to Bono and he just writes you a song, you're like how difficult is this? Yeah. So there we are, and now we are in. October, sorry, not October at all. We're in February 1983, and we're about to put this 12 inch of vinyl on the record player for the first time and see what we think. Here we go. Sunday, bloody Sunday. I'm going to avoid any reference to Alan Partridge and go straight to the thorny issue of politics in this song and in this album and suggest that what we're doing here is not going to be a fully historically based exploration of this song or the issues that revolve around the troubles but to suggest 
that obviously this song has clear links to particular events, uh, the events of innocent protesters being shot by uh, British Army paratroopers. But what we're interested in is, you know, kind of how this song speaks to us now, how this song has spoke to people over decades now, and also the fact that even at the time of its conception, it was a song that had actually rolled back on the specifics. I think it was Edge that pioneered the start of this song and actually had specific references lyrically to the IRA, for example, which were taken out or, you know, kind of brought down, you know, made less specific. Yeah. So, I mean, a quote that I've got, I think it's from Bono here, is that he thought that it was a song whose eloquence lay in its harmonic power rather than its verbal strength. So rather than being about a very specific issue, it was more about the harmonics of the song, the plaintiveness of the song, and the fact that rather than being specific and being fully ideologically nailing its colours to the mast, this is a song where you two nail their colours as white, i.e. it's non-aggression, it's about surrender. Pacifism. Yeah. yeah. And this album, I would say, if I can, you know, even at the start, offer some kind of general summation, is about it being militantly non-aggressive it's about the power that can lie in it's those aggressively values. pacifist yeah in i think bono has said something very similar i am paraphrasing bono though yeah um obviously it's not a great way to start because this is quite a heavy a subject it's not and, an upbeat and, start. and, and is something we want to avoid mainly because we don't want to offend anybody and it's it's quite hard for you were born in the late 80s, I was born in the early 90s. Mm. It's hard for us now, particularly in 2016, to fully appreciate what the song is about. Yeah. Um, so it would be wrong of us to comment on that. So we, the purpose of this is just to comment on our reaction to the song. And also I think that the power of making this song less specific is that when we saw this, as many people did, saw this song being performed at, for example, the Paris gig very, very recently, it seemed to have accrued a resonance that was entirely about a different event. It was about a different kind of form of anti-terrorism and about a different kind of um, activity that was going on. Hmm. So I think that's what makes the song interesting. I and just resonant. remembered that now when you mentioned it, and I actually you know, got the tingles. Yeah. Uh, because it was such a special, mom a special moment, and it... It is a song that can be adapted, and it's a song now, I believe, that gives people hope. Yeah. Um, but I think we should get back to the album, track one. Uh, if we're listening to this, what are your thoughts about the music? It's clear. The difference in sound here, I would say, is that this album in general is so much more clear. They have made a conscious decision to dial back the delay, dial back the reverb, and that leaves a lot less places to hide on this album, whereas I think they did a lot of hiding in October, as you can tell from a last review. Please go and check it out. And But the thing is, it doesn't matter on this album because it's such a great listen. Consistently, they are performing at such a high level. They don't need lots and lots of places to hide that are drenched in reverb and pit, you know, kind of pits and caverns of delay, that kind of thing. There is a rawness that is in uh, Boy and October. Yeah which you don't get in this. You have a sense of control. You have a sense of maturity. Like, let's not throw absolutely everything we have. Let's use the best bits, uh, and, and let's carry the song forward. The drums are real tight. It's, you yeah. know, that regimented style. Uh, Adam is present. <laughs> um, oh, so you're going to hate on Adam this I'm not. Episode. I'm not going to hate on, uh, hate on Adam whatsoever. 
Um, the band worked together. There is no one star. And this isn't the first time you'll hear me say this on this podcast with this album. There is no individual star in this song. Mm. The star is you two. Yeah. And that continues throughout the album. But this is a great introduction to the album. Uh, and having recently, in such quick succession, gone through Boy and October, one lyric particularly really stuck out to me, uh, and it's when Bono sings, uh, Wipe the Tears From Your Eyes. Mm. That is like, for me, Bono brushing himself off, you two brushing themselves off. October wasn't what they wanted it to be. It wasn't what anyone wanted it to be. Uh, <laughs> we enjoyed it, to a point. Um, but it's, what it is from your eyes, get up, fight again, write again, be who you want to be. There's a lot of optimism in this song. It's not just a moany political message. Hmm. There's a lot of optimism that just because things aren't right or haven't been right, they, they might get there. You know, they can still, there's still hope and there's still a light at the end of the tunnel. And that, that, that's a, a, something that I hadn't thought about this song. Yeah too many times before um, but on this listen when you consider boy in october that's a powerful message i think the only thing i want to add about about this song in particular because it came up in terms of the sound quality is that military drum beat that larry brings brings in i think at this time although i might be wrong that larry had been told um about how by other drummers how great it was to use a click track and similar thing happened with Dave Grohl, apparently, um, in Nirvana. Apparently, they didn't want to do it because they thought that was somehow cheating. You know, you should be able to keep time if you're a drummer. Yeah. But then apparently the second that they actually started using it, it clicked, so to speak, and it just made them a lot more tight. Now, I don't think that Larry's a sloppy drummer on any recording, to be honest. But you can really hear, and this is something we'll come back to time and time again, and it obviously fits so well with this uh, theme of war and, you know, kind of military uh, motifs throughout the album. The drums here are so clear and they are so well regimented and it fits. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's a great way to to start the album. More of the same, please, lads. Okay, Mr. The Edge. So you've made a bold scientific claim here, and we know that you're a man that takes a certain pleasure in the collection of data. So Tyler, could you please say the word goodbye on three? One, two, three. Goodbye. Right. So actually, it's come out as, on my stopwatch, zero, 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 point nine six. So he's actually pretty much bang on. That's impressive, do you not think? takes a second to say goodbye, and Edge was right. The scientist of the band. So this song was written uh, by Edge in a cottage on his own. He wanted, I don't know why, he he must have just wanted to get away from Bono and and the rest (laughs) of the gang. He wrote this on his own, secluded. He was contemplating leaving U2. Uh, He felt overworked, exhausted, um, but found himself writing... Uh, seconds. I really like this. It's a nice change in that Edge is um, 
front and center as the vocalist. Bono sings the second verse because you try shoving that ego out the door. Mm. But it works really well. It's catchy. It's the one song that I found myself singing more than any other song from this album. It's ridiculously catchy, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's so good. It, it's it really resonates. It's fun to sing. Uh, it's fun to sing along to. I I can't think of more praise for this. Really, I guess its downside is maybe just that it's that catchiness comes at the at the price potentially that it's seen as. A bit of a throwaway song at some points. I mean, because it's quite quick. I I don't agree with that, by the way. I just mean that it can be kind of forgotten because it's got this really catchy riff. And this is where, um, you know, kind of I think Adam is is playing so much better than the last album. But I think th- this the middle section where it has all the kind of Air Force Ranger stuff and the the call and response from the children and the military commander of some sort. That's where you get the actual interesting qualities to the the song and the atomic bomb stuff. Yeah, it's interesting that it's um, track two. Yep. Because uh, with Boy in October, you have three main songs, uh, well, three strong songs to start off with that drum home the message of the album. I'm, I'm, ma- I'm, I'm raising an eyebrow, which that, is inaudible. Well, that's fine. Just go with me, right? Okay. But with this, if they'd have, if they'd have put... The album together the same way as Boy in October. I feel I feel this album, this song, sorry, would be towards the end. You know that there's that dip before they try and finish yeah. positively, uh, which I don't think they succeed on the previous two albums. It's nice that they put it there because it's a it's just a it's a quick breath of rela- relaxation. It's a sorbet song, and then it's back into the heavy hitters. But what that does is it doesn't allow the album to slow down completely or grind to a halt, as I found it, mm. um, as I found Boy doing with Ankat Dub and Into the Heart. So I really like the placing of it. It's a great song. It's nice and catchy. Makes me want to just delve right into this album. I thought you could say dance. I no, I didn't dance to this song, but I did dance to another song. Oh, I wonder. I know which one that's going to be as well. But okay, interesting. <laughs> well, that can be a little uh, teaser to come. If you find yourself dancing at home, <laughs> then what? Please comment us. Okay, so track three. It's the first single from this album, "New Year's Day." S- such a classic song, staple of a live show. And is it is one of those amazing songs live uh, when the piano comes in on the on the record? I think it's more I th- Adam. It's one of Adam's most famous bass lines. Yeah, and I think he's really on point with this. You like to be a bit hard on Adam, but I don't think you only can only when he's playing badly. I don't think you can criticize. Um, well, it's only because due to his <laughs> bad playing that we have this song because hmm. he was trying to play the Visage song. Yeah, fade to grey. Yes. But I, I think greatness can come from trying out different things. Man, how, how else do you produce new music but combining old things by getting things wrong, by getting things differently? The quote that I have from Adam about this, or it might be from Edge, is that it was a baseline searching for a melody. So it's really interesting because it is almost like that kind of um, Love Will Tear Us Apart kind of, you know, where you can actually, you can hum the baseline under your breath and people will be able to tell you, oh, that's that song. Yeah. But the perfect thing about this is that that locks in with that p- 
piano riff and with the guitar from Edge. And that speaks to what you were saying before about this isn't about one person being a star. This isn't like, hey, Adam's got a great bass line. Stick him to the front of the mix. It's about them working together. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. This is the best I've heard, because we are imagining that we haven't heard any U2 albums. More or less, yeah. Uh, we're, we're pretending like this is the, the our first listen. We're pretending like we're going back in time. This, to date, in that mindset, is the best Bono has sounded. Yep. His voice is so impressive. And as, as I, I, I fancy myself as a bit of a singer, we've been in a band before now. I uh, say you could stop it, you just fancy yourself. <laughs> when Bono sings, it's true, it's true. And he just hits that note. As a singer, you listen to that and you just oh my god, I wish I could do that. I wish I could sound like he sounds. And it's just so, so impressive. I think this is the birth of U2. Because everybody is firing on all cylinders. This is the first time, I think, that you get that classic U2 sound. Just as a sidebar, the only person, I think, on their own estimation, who isn't firing on all cylinders, is Larry, who, re who repeatedly said it was quite a boring drum part. The thing is, you can't have him doing military sort of drum beats all the way through every single song. It's nice that it's peppered throughout, but it's fine that Larry's just doing quite a simple, you know, 4-4 four, four drum beat here. Yeah, it, re it really works. I have no criticism of this song. I've never... I don't think I've ever turned this song off if if it's come on my iPod or whatever. It's like one of those films that if you walk past you know, the front room and it's on, you're going to watch it. Absolutely. It's, it's so good and it's you two at the best. I find. In terms of where I was when I first heard this song, it was a very surreal experience because I took this um, ridiculously priced record home and stuck it in my <laughs> CD player. And when I got to this track, I was like, hang on, I know this, where's this from? And it's because my brother, who um, was into DJing, had got us a record as in an actual vinyl full of remixes. There's loads of them available, so I'm not sure which one it was. So I'd been used to this riff for such a long time. And I think the fact that it does translate to a dance music scene, I mean, people famously say you can't dance to U2, but it did translate at that particular time. This was not the track I danced on, though. No. But which one will that be? Like a song. For me, this is one of the best songs, U2 songs, I'd ever heard. And I remember I had a little horrible stereo in my bedroom at my mum and dad's house and I just used to turn this up as loud as it would go. And it's as fun to sing now as it was back then. You two get accused a lot of wearing the heart on the sleeve and maybe being a bit too overly emotive. <laughs> With this song and the album, by and large, you two aren't just wearing the hearts on the sleeves. They're stitching it to a flag and they're parading it up and down a street and touring all over the world. Mm. It's so big, it's so impressive, the sound... The, the the line in Leather, Lace and Chain, we state our claim. There is no U2 song where the imagery is so sharp in my head and I really get what they're on about and what they're singing about and I, I get the anger and how much they want. They just want to see some change. They, they're sick of what is around them and what is going on and the climate. And I just... This is perfect. I, I, I just... I, I can't... 
say and I can't describe how it makes you're me feel. Weeping. You're openly I, weeping. I'm openly weeping, <laughs> yes. But Johnny, thoughts? Well, looking at my notes here, the first thing I've got written down is, why is this song so forgotten? And I've read, you know, kind of brief little reviews of this and, you know, snippets of people commenting on this song saying the rather boringly obvious line of, oh, yeah, it's like a song, but it's not actually a song. Maybe it's because it comes straight after New Year's Day, which is so well known and so successfully, you know, a single. And I agree, this song has certain quirks, which make it, for me, one of the best tracks on the album, but also make it, for a mass audience, probably a little bit of an unlikely choice for a single. So maybe that's why they didn't... um... Well, maybe they didn't want to get too political. You know, they didn't want every single they released to be, you know, political. And with this album particularly, it's quite hard. I noticed they released four singles in America and only two over here. I don't know the logic behind that. I... I don't know. Bigger they, market, they, they, I guess. They released the two waters. hearts uh, beaters one over there, um, okay. but they. I think we only got New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday. I suppose that makes sense in terms of how that song sounds and how. I mean, it's interesting because just think about war. I think this is actually where we do get a little bit of a fascination with America, and also in various parts, a little bit of distance from the from the idea of America necessarily being completely perfect as a place we'll come back to that the only thing i wanted to really say here i mean apart from the fact that edge's guitar is so instantly dynamic and interesting is that i wish we could see this live today and just see if they could commit that translate that energy that's on the record into a live performance or just a more contemporary version of this because as far as i know it's not one that gets much time live i think i have heard live versions of it okay. but only from the 80s and what bootlegs that kind of thing is it not on it's red not rock on, it's not it's on not red, red rocks. rocks right i would love it if it was on red rocks i don't know maybe i have it on some cd because I, I did go for a phase of buying the bootlegs but yeah this song would be so good live if i was in a at any decent u2 tribute band at this point I would sing this song. For how long? No, seriously, how long would you sing this song? 40 minutes. Drowning Man. (laughs) Or Tyler trying to amuse a child. This song is a really beautiful transition from the very fast-paced two songs we've just heard before and even seconds gets a little bit rowdy towards its end to something that is a lot more something a little bit more gentle and i think you get edges kind of sparky harmonics played in an acoustic guitar here that really stand out at the start but they're taking time the military beat is still present although i think larry has moved to a lighter form of drumstick here not to smash into it in the same way that he smashes through sunday bloody sunday and other songs And fun fact about this, and this is where, as we mentioned on the last recording, a musician just sort of turns up on the album, and this is where apparently a violinist called Steve Wickham spotted Edge with his guitar at the bus stop and said, hey, you're in U2, can I play on the album? And he turned up and added some great stuff, both to this track and to Sunday Bloody Sunday. And it works, I think it it only adds richness to the album. We might reach some other people later on who maybe don't add quite as perfect... Uh, I'm spoiling it now. 
basically we have additional people and sometimes it works and sometimes it's less successful but i think it's a great song uh yeah it's uh midway through the album track five fresh sound an introduction of uh, the violin as you said i've just got reading through my notes again i got the sense of october this about a you know title drowning man I, th I feel it's directed at people who find themselves in a similar position as you two did um, when they were going through the making of October. There's a certain urgency to the song, which which is it, which is nice. Yeah. But do you think that Edge sounds like Edge in this? Because and I don't um, agree or disagree. It's just when I was listening to this, I thought, hmm. Is is that the edge, or am I just thinking it's the edge because I know it's the edge? Like, does it sound like the edge to you, or is he using a different sound? I mean, it's definitely different from the sounds that he's been using on the preceding tracks. But to me, those kind of those harmonics on the guitar they make this sound very much like Edge. There's a very kind of full, bold chords. By the time we get to the end, where we're going, we're always going, hold on, and then we have bling, jung jung. But I think that works as well. The song sort of becomes a little bit more arch and military, having become gentle at the start. So that was just a question that you know came to, to my mind, yeah. and maybe next time you're listening to it, you'll think, mm, "Does it sound like Edge?" And uh, listeners, feel free to question whether that sounds like Edge, because I seriously don't know. Was this know. Edge, or was this an imposter sneaking his way no, into the like, YouTube? No, like, is he just experimenting with a different sound? Mm -hmm. Also, at this point, Edge very hard to impersonate in terms of dress up who'd want to look like that <laughs> the refugee a song that i do kind of forget about a lot of the time um have you ever found yourself reaching for war just to put this this song on no but i'd also say it's so distinctive on this album that i never quite forget it i mean those early calls at the start, do you hear that as whoa, whoa, oh, oh, or war, war, right at the start of the record? Whoa, yeah. Whoa, so yeah. I think it could be war. Um, I think it could, but, well, it maybe, but I've never I've never thought that. Mm. Um, Again? I think that's quite a naive... nice to hear what people think. That's quite a naive thought. Maybe, you know, when you first heard the album, like you had war in your mind, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But it's quite a strange thing to show, even to sing, even for Bono. True. It doesn't sound like you've got much to say about this song. I, I do. I, I didn't know much about the, the song until I researched it, really. I didn't realise what it was about. It's about the U2's experiences in America and how different people are treated uh, in different ways, particularly how Irish immigrants seem to be able to, or seemed to be able to, go to America and they were allowed to succeed, but uh, African-American immigrants were segregated and mm. um, were put under certain pressures. Now, we are got kind of uh, going down a political route here, but it, it's interesting that they you know, felt the need to write this song as, as uh, Irish immigrants themselves, yeah. when they are trying to achieve as much as they, as they possibly can, but they also see an inequality that they disagree with, and, and in the land of the free, they want people, everybody to be able to achieve their absolute potential. I definitely got a sense of that criticism of America here, but weirdly I find it comes across strongest from the the sound of the song, the music of the song, rather than its explicit content. So 
when Edge does that slide guitar um, kind of motif, the you know what you're going to mean. Yeah. That to me sounds like he's using a kind of, it's I don't know how to explain this, but it's sort of like a cynical mocking parody of a certain type of American sound there. And it sounds like the, I mean, it sounds really intelligently written to me that there is that kind of use of the guitar to add flavor and tone to the song that makes it seem more critical and more interesting than simply being, you know, this is a song, we're going to bang on about this. Two hearts beat as one. Or as I call it, how Adam Clayton got his groove back. Oh, so you like Adam on this track? Yeah, I like Adam on this album in general. I think this is the Adam I wanted to see, and that he probably was trying to be, if I'm being presumptuous, on the last album. I think this is where he actually can play something a bit more groovy, and it works, rather than it being a kind of an affectation. What are you laughing at? I'm groovy. laughing because I just looked down at my it's notes. A 90s word. I, I just I just looked down at my notes. And you've written groovy. And um, I think I put funky somewhere, but <laughs> when, a bit about Adam. We seem to have, uh, have sw- uh, switched our opinions on this, because I've put Adam seems to dip in and out as he likes. That sounds like a school report or something. <laughs> well, are these not school reports of YouTube albums? In a way, I guess they're young and we're evaluating them. So, what do you think being beyond the baseline, which, as we've said, is funky and groovy? This is one of my favourite songs. Okay. This is a song that I've always enjoyed singing along to. And dancing along to? No. What the hell? Um, this is a song going to come up that you dance so much to. <laughs> this is a big, fun, bombastic song where I think everybody is on point. Everybody uh, is doing the jobs real well and they are... There's, there's a certain unity to the sound. And you can't take one piece out of this song without changing it forever and ultimately destroying it. Always been one of my favourites. I can see why they released it as a, a single in America. don't know why they didn't release this one over here. I mean, if we get into the whys and wherefores in you two releasing things or not releasing things or not putting stuff And how they may release them. Yes, well, that'll be something that'll be interesting as we get further further away from the old stuff and into the new. Yeah. But I would say it is a nice, it's a nice poppy love song in a way. And I think there is real depth there. I mean, the fact that we're still going back to those themes. I mean, I've got some lyrics here. I don't know how to say what's got to be said. I don't know if it's white or, sorry, black or white. Others see it red. So there is obviously an engagement there. It's almost like he can't simply write a love song. It has to, again, get back to these issues of sectarianism about whose side are you on, tell us what side you're on. There's also a thing, uh, like a, a question that Bono's asking. Is love still important? Like, is, per- is a personal relationship and a marriage... Remember, this is the song he wrote for Ali, by the way. Okay. Is this triviality of getting married, is that important when the world has such problems that need sorting out and people are at war and people are, are dying? That's a big question to ask. How much of the everyday should we carry on until we sort this out? Is is the everyday a distraction? Mm. And I, I find that a, a really interesting question. But considering who this song was written for, Bono, you just married this woman. Those aren't the questions to be throwing around at people. This, she was listening going, it's really great, Bono, thank you. I, I just Pretty hope this tea. wasn't in his speech at the wedding. 
would have gone for ages, I imagine. Ah, oh, yeah. Only thing I want to say about this track is that I think that by the time you get to the end section of this song and you can hear everything gelling together and Edge has gone up to a higher register on the guitar, Clayton does some sort of big slide bass thing, they actually sound, and this is crazy, and perhaps we've not even seen it yet, like they're having fun as a band, which I can't think yeah, of. Yeah, I've thought that on that. a couple of tracks when I was listening listening to them. It sounds like they've given themselves a break. Yeah. Red Light. I find the introduction to this song uncomfortable, and this is what I was alluding to before. I think uh, this is an occasion where the song should just start with Edge, should just start with his guitar. However, I think that uh, Kid Creole and the Coconuts add a lot to this song in general. It's just that introduction I don't particularly like. I think it just sounds a bit weak and naive. But then when the song gets moving, gets jumping, if you will, it's great. When the trumpet comes in. There's good trumpet in here. Yeah, no, that's great. Unlike bad trumpet from October. But before that... I really thought this song sounded clashy. As in, like the clash? Yes. This A bonus in my book. Um, but did you not make that connection? I know you're a, a bigger fan of the clash than I am. Um, do you know what? I'd not made that connection, but I think once it does get a bit jumpy, then it does actually sound a bit a bit more... It sounds like... The guitar, bit... certainly. Yeah. Um, it, it, just, it really stuck out to me as little... Uh, I, I know very little about the clash, but it did stick out to me that this is... Pretty much the only time that you two completely go all out with that Clash influence. I know Edge is a huge Clash fan. The only other time I would say where it's, I mean, even more conscious is in uh, Where You Can Reach Me Now. Or This Is Where You Can Reach Me Now. What, what, what song is that? We're in, uh, we're in 1980. Oh, we're still pretending we're in the time machine? Yeah. Okay. No, you're completely right, Tyler. Up until this point, you two have never made a song that sounds like the Clash in this way. Agreed. Good. Um, what do you think of... Uh, is it Kid Creole? I hadn't come across this before. Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Now, I don't know who's singing, if it's Kid Creole or... I, it's the Coconuts. It's the Coconuts. Okay. The Coconuts are... Um, but is Kid Creole part of that Kid sound? Cre I think Kid Creole is the trumpet. Oh. From my brief, and I'm sure people will correct me if I'm wrong. All those Kid Creole and the Coconuts fans. <laughs> I think it's Kid, and Kid Creole's Coconuts. I don't think it's... And the Coconuts. Well, I've got and But the again... There are anoraks out there waiting to correct us. Bloody anoraks. Apparently, when they were recording this, one of the coconuts took off her top. And revealed. Which, which revealed a, um, like a, a ballet bra, a bra, which is very... It wasn't like a coconut bikini like you get in cartoons. <laughs> don't, you, don't you wish... Can you imagine that? Apparently they put the red lights on in the studio, mm -hmm. so um, they could get you know kind of get this quite a strange scene. And is that where the name for the song originated from then? Um, I think it's. I read somewhere it's to do with prostitution. I can't find any like, evidence of that in anything. But I, I have to. I have to admit, if someone says red light to me, that's, that's where, what you think. That's yeah. where, you, where my mind goes. So maybe someone's made that connection. But they were innocent lads, weren't they? Well, they just told the world, and they are rock stars. I mean, obviously Bono has never cheated because he's with Ali. Yeah. Um, but Edge, you know, he, I, 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 the story goes he was in that cottage alone. But who knows? The religiosity of the three of them, and I mean, Adam was notoriously kind of like a wild one, but I think it would have been a little bit embarrassing. They've said that it was a bit embarrassing for them when um, the coconuts were stripping down in the studio. 
Maybe we should talk about the song a bit more. No, did you know that um, Trash Trampoline and Party Girl was written about Adam? Yeah. I know a boy, a boy called Trampoline, if you know what I mean. He that doesn't one. sing it that suggestively in the song, but yeah, it is about Adam, apparently. Because he's up he, and down. And I think he looks, yeah, and I think he looks yeah. over to him on the recording <laughs> of Red Rocks, and you can see Adam's like, oh yeah. That's my song. Well, back onto the actual music. I think Adam is unhurried early on, but then really jumpy later on, which is great. Um, I think there's a development there. Bono's range is shown off to ridiculous levels here. You really go through the whole gamut of his possible singing ranges. Yeah, I think this sound is never repeated. This may be U2's most 80s sounding track. And maybe it is because of the influence of the guest artists on the, on the track. I think it's fun. Uh, I think it's funky. This sound, they never repeat this sound, which I'm I'm okay with, you know, because the the U2 that we've got that's pretty good. And if they had started going down this track, you know, let's trust their judgment on this one. Fun song. I like to forget about it and then be surprised about it when I hear it on the album. Penultimate track, surrender. Thoughts on this one, Johnny? I think it's interesting that on the last album, we had a point in a song where Bono starts singing about someone, the uh, the very infamous Julie, whereas on this one, he's singing about Zadie. Oh, sorry, was that uh, Julie who's... She's seen John? Is, is that the... Is yeah, it? Julie yeah. and John. Julie and John. They're a lovely couple. Yes, they are great, aren't they? Can't think about anything about them, but they are a lovely couple. Yeah, well... The difference it, here... <laughs> They're important enough to get in a U2 song. And be completely forgettable. Unlike a certain fire I know. Anyway, um, so the difference here is that I actually give a thimble about Zadie because I edited myself there. I care about Zadie here because there is a vivid nightlife sketch by this song. When you actually listen to the lyrics to Surrender and you consider them with the, the music, you have all this, you know, brightness, the city coming alive. And I actually care about Zadie stood at the top of the um, 48th floor um, having an existential crisis. I actually care, even though it's not about, you know, or it, might, it doesn't matter if it's about a particular person. Um, I love this song. It's great. And it's definitely something that I keep coming back to. Again, the coconuts are present and that really enriches the song. Can't have a party without the coconuts. Uh, this was the song that made me dance. <laughs> this, this is the song that I was kind of dancing to, and um, I, I, I enjoyed listening to it. Uh, the drum and bass work exactly how they're supposed to. There's nothing extraordinary, I don't think, on the track, but it's um, it's Plane's doing a bit of popping, but it's I a, don't mind. It's a tight display yeah. uh, from the drum and bass section. There is a I notice a terrible, terrible quarrel section, which is probably the coconuts. Sorry, cokes. Mm. Um, it won't end. It, there's a lot of false finishes. Oh, it's going to end now. Oh, it's yeah. going to end now. Oh, no, there's another bit. And it just refuses to end. It really overstayed its welcome. I enjoyed it. Uh, my feet were hurting. I'd been dancing that long. You shouldn't be dancing to this song, that's why. I did check my player and thought, how long is this song? So I did notice it was long. But I quite enjoyed the fact that they were sort of unhurried and sticking around. They're trying out... And this may be the difference, I suppose, in, in what we want from a song. You want a dance anthem. I was really enjoying the fact that you've got 
the kind of vistas and the kind of sonic landscape, if I can use those pretentious terms, that that bespeak, to continue my pretentiousness, of what's to come on the next album. So there's p- parts where Edge is trying lots of different things purely for the sake of creating different textures, and I find that really interesting. But if you're tap dancing along, then you might be feeling sore. Um, my final thoughts about this are nice bass slides. I noticed those. By the end of it, you can tell Larry's bored. Yeah. Like I don't know how he's managed to portray boredness or boredom, as I think is the word. It's conventional, but yeah, hey, you know, whatever. I, I I don't know how he's conveyed the boredosity. The bored attitude. The bored attitude of playing this song, but it just sounds so laboured at the end. He carries on, but it's just, you can tell like Larry does not give a shit by the end of this. By the end of this song, so yeah, um, I surrendered. I listened to it, um, but I think it's time to talk about one of the most impressive U two songs of all time. Forty. This is an interesting song with an interesting story. An improvisation almost. Bono reaching for the Bible, picking Psalm 40. It took 40 minutes to record. It was at a difficult juncture in the recording process because they really needed to record one more track and the studio was booked up for the next band to come in. So they had to make something work. Tyler, what was the result? I I think this is a great tune. Uh, maybe it only comes into its own in a live arena. You know, you think of Red Rocks, uh, the breakdown as each member leaves the stage. Bono first, uh, then Edge, then Adam. Larry's left drumming, and uh, Larry's kind of though with his audience. The U2 is his band, and it's it's a nice moment. Um, we've seen it played live, and it it's still powerful and it's still uh, welcoming. It's simple and it's not gonna it's not gonna blow anybody away, but when you leave an arena or a stadium or or even a you know a smaller show, and everybody in attendance, whether they know the song or not, they're left singing. How long will I sing this song? How long? How long? Uh, and you've got Larry just going on for however long he wants and mm. just enjoying it. It's special and it's a unique moment every time. Um, I really like the track. I. I I don't mind the... Uh, I, I like the studio version, actually. But seeing it live, hearing it live, uh, even watching it live on a DVD, that song is it just turned up to 10, and it's so much more impressive. Particularly on um, the Vertigo tour, I think. There's an incredible version of that. Yeah. I think it's the very last song, actually, that gets played, and you do see Larry sat on his own, and he could just walk off, but then he just decides to hammer out the um, the drums on its own. And it is just the drums with the chanting, and it's absolutely incredible. Well, we talked about like them enjoying what they do. And yep. there are parts of this record where they you can tell they're enjoying what they're doing. When you see them play this live, it's very evident that they're just enjoying it. It's not a particularly hard song to play, but it's just time for them... To enjoy the the song and enjoy the interaction with the audience, did you notice how this song starts? It has a kind of like 
There's a little clicky track and this uh, what? bonus uh, starts it with one, two, three, four. Ah. And I know you noticed that Boy in October started that way. Uh-huh. Um, so I found this interesting that this album ends with one, two, three, four. Although technically on on Gloria, isn't it two, three, four? Doesn't he miss the one of I don't know. I'm splitting hers here. I've not analysed it that that clearly. <laughs> um what, but what? I, I, th- I thought I'd point that out uh, to see if you'd noticed that. Are you sure it's Bono? Is it not an engineer or someone else? Well, I, I assume Bono, being the vocalist of U2, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. would be the one saying it. What is an engineer doing with, his, with a microphone in his hand? Okay. I would say... What would you say? I would say this is a really interesting song because I think as we've got through all of these tracks, particularly the latter half of the album, we've stopped talking as explicitly about the themes of militancy, of aggression, of war, that kind of thing, even though they're still present. I mean, you know, we just had Surrender. But what I think is really good about this album, what makes it complex and interesting and rich, is that we've moved from that aggressive musical style to something a lot more gentle, a lot more deep, and yet the themes are still there and they've become resonant in a different way so the fact that we do have that how long to sing this song that speaks to any conflict we have to keep singing this kind of song which has a kind of plaintive optimism about it until the world gets at least to be a certain amount of order in it you know a certain amount you have to keep fighting you have to keep you know striving striving for change you know uh, talking to each other unifying with people maybe you, you don't get along with uh, I get that, I love the book ending between Sunday Bloody Sunday, how long will I sing this song and then 40 right at the end mm. how long will I sing this song, it's like they go full circle lovely little nice story throughout the album is created by that and I described this uh, and I forgot I wrote this but a lovely lilting lackadaisical tune to end on and, and those are a little bit of alliteration going on there well done. But I felt all those things when I listened to this. And I think this is a great way to end an album. And I think this is the first time they end an album strong. Yeah. Uh, Compare this to... Um... Shadows and Tall Trees and... Oh, let's not even talk about Is That All. Yeah. They find... There is not a weak song on this album. No. We are about to discuss um, Our Sweets Thing and Our Dirty Day. But it's important to to note that there is not a bad song on this album. No. This is as tight as they can possibly be. This may be U2's most consistent album. And it makes choosing The Sweetest Thing and The Dirty Day very difficult, because yeah. how do you how do you pick between those? Because the consistency is so high. There's not obvious you know clunkers on there. Yeah. The obvious question we ask each week is, is this an album? It's an unequivocal sorry, yes. Sorry, Johnny. No, no, no. <laughs> I don't know if you've listened to the show, but the question we ask is, is this a flipping album? Oh, sorry. Yes, it is a flipping album. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's, it's always been one of my favourite U2 albums. It was a pleasure to go back and listen to it in this way and get to research the songs and find deeper meanings. I, I love this album and I don't want a fanboy, but I, I don't have anything negative to say about this album. All I'll say is seventeen ninety nine, well spent. So, Tyler, what was your sweetest thing on war? Can I do the jingle? 
Yes. Oh, the sweetest thing! I don't want that to be our regular jingle, but go on. I think it changes every week. Okay. Um, my sweetest thing this week is Like a Song. It made me feel like I was 14 again. Just that, that, that's, has, that song has a magical power to me. I also wrote down Like a Song as a contender for this. Okay. But New Year's Day just pipped it to the post. It's just, in my opinion, a, a better, more transcendent song, but it was a tough battle. So, Johnny, you go first with your dirty day. Again, it's difficult because it's so consistent, but the track that I could live without easiest, even though I still like it a lot, would be The Refugee. Yeah, I put that one as well. Yeah, great. Uh, I think that's ding, the ding, fir- ding, it's our first time we've actually matched up. Yeah. There is, as, I, as I say, there isn't a bad song on the album. As a listening experience to go through, that was the song that I could probably skip. Not that I ever have. Okay, there we have it. That was War. And we'd like to know, was War a struggle for you? Will you give it your love? Take some seconds to tell us what you think. We're asking for feedback. So, yeah. What do you think about this album? What do you think about our opinions? Are we completely wrong? Get in touch by any means possible. Leave a comment. Contact us. But Tyler, I think you just wanted to wrap it up for us. Just to tie up all the loose ends, I think it's very fair to say that Boy, October and War are um, the first chapter in the story of you 2 Yep. War is as much a result of Boy in October as it is the foundation for the next chapter, for albums 4, 5 and 6. Some fans stopped at this point. There is a lot of U2 fans are like, oh, they're okay, they're early stuff, but you know they didn't really carry on later into the 80s. That's okay, but for me, U2 are ready now at this point. They have uh, the style sorted out. The personas are still forming, but you know are a lot more clearer than they have been two, three years ago. They're going forward. They've got more musical freedom. They aren't in debt to a, a, a company. This really makes me want to rejoice, if you like. Yeah, good track. Going forward, I'm really looking forward to discovering the next three because I don't think I'd actually know the next three as well, which is quite surprising. Yeah. But drawing this chapter to a close, I would just like to say that how much I've actually enjoyed listening to the to you two, listening uh, and reviewing. Uh, and sharing our thoughts, I, it's a nice little outlet, and it's something that I I really looked forward to. Like, I I'd like to get home and go, oh yeah, I'm listening to the, the U2 record tonight, and yeah. I've got to make my notes and I've got to do the research. This is why we started doing this, and I think on my on my end, it's been a very, a very worthwhile exercise. I found it a complete waste of time. Well, I think you're an arsehole. <laughs> no, I really, really love doing this. And I look forward to u two sound getting bigger, them taking up a more central space on the world's musical stage, coming in from the margins of a new wave sound, developing into a mainstream act, a stadium act even. But that's part of the next chapter. All that's left to say is thank you very much for listening. From me, Tyler. And me, Johnny. See you next time. Goodbye. Bye.
Hi there. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at review2contact at gmail.com. That's R-E-V-U-2 contact at gmail.com.